Hi, I'm David Porter, author of Five Minutes to Live. Just a few things to note about the podcast. First, if you want to purchase Five Minutes to Live, the link is in the description of the podcast, but can be purchased online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and even at Walmart and Target online. I've also listed my Facebook and Twitter links. I'd love to hear from you, especially if you're enjoying the book. In this series, we're going to read through Five Minutes to Live, chapter by chapter, releasing a new chapter each week. If you didn't start with Episode 1, the prologue, please go back and start there. Please subscribe and hit the alert notification, whatever that looks like on your preferred podcast platform. That way you'll know when the new episodes are released. And if you're enjoying this journey, please, please, please share this podcast with your friends and family. Five Minutes to Live has a lot of footnotes for the research done and the Bible verses quoted. I'll post those footnotes in the description of each episode. Finally, I've got a new book on the way titled 60 Seconds of Silence that I am really excited about. Once that book is available, I'll go back and post that link in each episode's description as well. With that, thank you for being here. Let's get started. So in today's reading, we're going to read chapter one of five minutes to live. Before we get into this, there's a couple of things that I need to tell you guys. First, I'm from Alabama and I have a Southern accent. There are people from England, from Israel and different places as characters in the book. I'll do my best with the accents, but just imagine they're from Southern England or southern Israel as we get into it. Also, the characters in the book have uh, foreign names. I'm going to give you a very Americanized version of their names. So with that, let's get going. This is chapter one, two days earlier. Matt. Matt. Are you listening to me? I had to admit, at that very moment, I hadn't heard a word that Jessica had been saying. My mind was elsewhere, thinking about how I look like a secret agent in my new tuxedo. Jessica and I had met a few years earlier and, remarkably, because of the circumstances of our first contact, a friendship had grown. Some people might call it dumb luck, but I choose to think of it as divine providence. I was at the Charlotte International Airport, standing in what I figured had to be the world's slowest moving line at Starbucks on Concourse B. At the time, there were only two people working in the tiny coffee shop, and they were working as fast as they could, but the line just continued to grow. Now you would think Standing in line for that long would give people a chance to figure out what they want to order by the time they arrived at the cashier. That did not seem to be the case on this day. Growing more and more frustrated, I kept checking my watch, becoming more upset with each passing second because of how long it was taking in line. I honestly don't know why I was in such a hurry. It was probably the circumstances of the days leading up to my time at Starbucks but my connecting flight didn't leave for several hours, so I had the time to spare. 
It was during one of those moments, lost in my own world, checking my watch for the hundredth time in just a matter of minutes, that I heard a woman's voice behind me say, You're not alone. And my life changed forever. That woman was Jessica, and she was just trying to make some small talk. She said, You're not alone, with the implied meaning. You're not the only one who thinks this is taking forever, or you're not alone in checking your watch a hundred times. What she wasn't expecting to happen next did. At that moment, when I heard those three words, you're not alone, the tears began to flow. I couldn't stop them. Rivers and rivers of tears streamed down my face. The floodgates were opened. Looking around for something to use, I grabbed one of the world's least comfortable tear wipers, the only thing I had at my disposal right then. I grabbed one of those brown-colored, eco-friendly, made-from-recycled-material Starbucks napkins and tried to stymie the tear streaming down my face. Clear tears ran down my cheeks. Clear snot poured out of my nose. All of this because a complete stranger said, you're not alone. To anyone else, that would have been a clear sign that I was mentally unstable. It would have been the easiest thing for Jessica to politely apologize, step out of the shop, and leave the weirdo sobbing in the Starbucks line alone. Incredibly, that's not what she did. Jessica reached into her purse, pulled out one of those travel Kleenex packs, and handed me something soft to wipe the tears from my face. I saw the genuine concern in her eyes and a tenderness in her touch as she placed her hand on my shoulder. What Jessica didn't know, what she couldn't know, was that I had just spent the weekend at my father's funeral. My mother was too emotionally spent to give me much comfort or to help with what I was going through emotionally. Additionally, she just wasn't up to doing all the necessary things, so it fell on me to plan the funeral, purchase the casket, Organize everything from ordering flowers to ordering the food for the family. On top of it all, I wanted to be strong for my mother. Speaking at my dad's funeral was hard and brought tears to my eyes, but it wasn't until I was standing in line at Starbucks feeling completely spent, tired, empty, and alone that the emotions finally resurfaced. Jessica said, you're not alone, meaning you're not alone in this line. But to me, it sounded like a message delivered directly from God. You're not alone, and you never will be. Finally, I was able to regain my composure as Jessica and I quietly made our way out of line. One of the great things about Starbucks is that they are everywhere. Everywhere. And that includes the airport in Charlotte. As we left Concourse B, we found another Starbucks on Concourse C, two doors down from a frozen yogurt shop. This particular Starbucks only had one person in line and three people working behind the counter. Jessica ordered some fancy drink with several Italian-sounding words in it, and I ordered coffee. Black. I paid, and we made our way to the frozen yogurt shop, and each had a small cup of the frozen goodness. Over a cup of mountain blackberry yogurt, I learned that Jessica was returning from a business trip to Israel, that her father had died toward the end of her senior year in college, and that she had been recruited to her job shortly after. 
The elderly gentleman who recruited her had been a guiding presence, taking her under his wing and helping her through the pain of loss. She could relate to what I was going through, but I simply couldn't believe that she would help a complete stranger like she did. Tenderness radiated from her. By the time I needed to make my way to my connecting flight, my attitude had changed. My emotions were restored. I felt alive and I knew in my bones I wasn't alone. God somehow was with me. Jessica stayed with me right up until the moment I boarded the airplane. We exchanged telephone numbers and hugs and I thanked her profusely. If that had been my last contact with Jess, my life would have been forever changed. She made that type of an impact. But incredibly, it wasn't the last time I had contact with her. She actually called a few days later to check up on me. We picked up right where we had left off at the airport, spending most of that afternoon on the phone. Over the following months, we found we had many things in common, and it was effortless to have lengthy conversations. It was easy to spend hours on the phone together. In particular, we connected through our mutual Christian faith. This was, I think, something new for both of us. Some people click over a shared hobby, a sport, a particular hangout or bar. Connecting over a shared belief in God and the way he worked was something new to both of us. As we got to know each other more and more, we realized our Christian faith was more than just a Sunday morning religion to either of us. It was a way of life. Jessica and I both grew up in church, living what we called a life of faith. This form of Christianity, this doctrine, places a high value on the Bible, in Jesus' words. If Jesus said it, we consider it true. We choose to believe it. So when Jesus said things like, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them, we believe that if we want or need things like godly direction or wisdom, we can pray and believe, and he said, we will receive those things. We believe it's true. I don't know why, but sometimes this gets a negative connotation with people, even with fellow Christians. I guess they think in terms of getting things from God like money or fame. To us, to me and Jessica, if it's in the Bible, that settled it. And that shared faith in what God's written word said, even through the pushback of other Christians, brought the two of us even closer. But there was something different about Jessica's relationship with God, something I had never really experienced. She spoke of a personal, intimate relationship with him, of speaking with him on a daily basis, and that God would respond to her and help her, give her direction, lead her and guide her. That sounded completely crazy to me because I had never experienced anything like that. I didn't know how that could even be possible. But the more I got to know her, the more I believed Jessica when she said it. I wanted to find out if God would speak to me on a daily basis too. Hours were spent on the phone, FaceTime, Skype, even on Xbox Live. We talked, laughed, played games. We even had a regularly scheduled Bible study together where we explored many different topics. We studied things such as the authority that resides in the follower of Christ, 
God's grace on us. Old Testament heroes like Abraham, Ruth, and Noah, and the different teachings of the apostles. Jessica had even begun sharing with me how to communicate with God and how to hear his voice. She said it was an easy thing and that I would be able to do it. And I believed her, even if I didn't know what I was doing. She lived halfway across the country and worked halfway around the world, but that didn't hinder our growing friendship. The company Jessica worked for was based in Israel, and because her lab was there, she traveled extensively all over the world. We tried to meet occasionally as our schedules would permit, times when she would be in my part of the country or a part of the country where I happened to be. We met one time for a weekend in San Diego where we toured the USS Midway and walked along the boardwalk. Once, it was a springtime trip to Nashville to see the city. We even watched a professional hockey game there. We still hadn't visited her lab in Tel Aviv. In fact, I'd never been out of the country. But tonight, she wanted me to witness her work, or at least witness the results of the work she had done. This trip, tonight, was for a lecture she was giving at Penn State University. That's where Jessica had completed her graduate studies in geology a few years before we met and where she changed from Miss Adams to Dr. Adams. Jessica was what she termed a histogeologist. And even though I didn't know exactly what that was, it sounded impressive. Tonight's invitation gave me the opportunity to finally reconnect in person with my friend. Jessica didn't want to show up to her formal presentation a $500 per plate dinner fundraiser alone, so she invited me as her plus one. The evening had been presented to potential donors as a once-in-a-lifetime event. It gave me a chance to see Jess, finally be able to learn about the work she's been doing, and almost equally as important, it gave Jessica a chance to see me in the new tuxedo I had recently purchased. Every time I put this thing on, I feel like James Bond, I said as I looked at my reflection in the mirror. What kind of car are we riding in? Please tell me they're picking us up in like a Bentley limousine, little flags on the corners, something like that. Matt, are you listening to me? I'm trying to practice this part of my speech. It's really important. She continued rehearsing. The presence of water trapped within the ringwoodite indicates vast amounts of water beneath the Earth's surface layer. I'm, I'm sorry, no, I'm lost, I interrupted again. What were you saying? I was trying to find the James Bond theme song on my phone. Jess, I need a gun. Don't you think? Yeah, I need a gun. Davenport. Matthew Davenport. Matt, you look great, but I really need to practice this speech. Will you listen at least until the car gets here to pick us up? It's important, I get this out, that it's clear so the scientific community can't refute it. And no, you absolutely don't need a gun. She tried to continue her speech. The presence of water trapped within the ringwoodite indicates vast amounts of water beneath the Earth's surface layer. Along with the findings of Dr. Pearson from the University of Alberta and Dr. Jacobson of Northwestern University, my research shows a sizable amount of water trapped between the upper mantle and lower mantle regions in what is known as the transition zone. 
She paused and then said to me as an aside, I'll have a couple of slides right here that will give a diagram of the different water levels and time out, Jess. Where is the water? Underground? How, how deep did you say? And what is the transition zone? I thought that had to do with dinosaurs and when they went extinct. Wasn't that millions of years ago? No, Matt. You're thinking of the KT boundary layer, not the transition zone. Similar names, but so vastly different in every other aspect. And scientists have them both wrong. Did you even take basic science classes in college? You know that I've got a chemistry minor. Thank you very little, I responded with a chuckle. Jessica continued, the KT boundary is the layer separating the so-called Cretaceous and Tertiary periods. We're talking shallow, surface of the earth stuff here, Matt. The KT layer is exposed in most places, and where it's not exposed, it's only a few hundred feet below the surface at its deepest point. The KT layer is where they dig for fossils. The transition zone, on the other hand, is miles below the surface of the earth. And by the way, the dinosaurs didn't go extinct millions of years ago. She paused before adding, and I can prove it. She let that last sentence hang in the air for a beat longer than normal. Listen, I know this isn't the most riveting stuff to you, Matt, but I invited you here to be with me tonight for a couple of reasons. Not just because you're my best friend and I didn't want to be dateless, but also because tonight will be one of those course-altering points in history, and I didn't want you to miss it. I haven't been able to tell you what I've been working on all this time, but tonight, some of God's handiwork will be revealed. I think tonight will be one of those times you'll be able to tell your kids, I was there when it happened. I know that tonight will be life-changing for me, for science, for the truth about the creation of our planet. The impact will be felt in several scientific areas of study, including the theory of evolution, the dinosaur extinction, history, geology, anthropology, and even the Big Bang. I know the answers. God has shown me the answers. And I want you to be a part of it, Matt, with me. I was a little speechless as she dropped this news on me. What could she have discovered and kept hidden from me that would revolutionize science? I think she saw the look on my face, that stunned, open mouth searching for the words expression, and bailed me out. I don't know how these distinguished and accomplished scientists will take this news. They have spent their whole lives working toward an established paradigm that I will essentially prove is incorrect, revealing it this evening. It's revolutionary in thought. It's a radical new approach. I will be kicking over a lot of sacred scientific beliefs, those things that seem to form the foundation, the bedrock of science today. My conclusions are backed by years of research, but I think I'm going to anger a lot of people tonight. There will be a significant amount of backlash. I need you there with me. I stood there. Proud to be her friend, proud to be here with her, proud that she called me, proud that she wanted me there, that she needed me there. Do you remember the first three words you ever said to me 
I asked. A smile flashed across Jessica's face. Of course I do, she replied. You're not alone. Well, tonight, you're not alone, I said. Then I added, I'm here for you and always will be. I personally thought she was probably overreacting, and I was just about to try and settle her down when her phone chimed, a text message. She picked up her phone, unlocked it, read the message, and said, the car is here to pick us up. Come on, James Bond, it's time to go. I grabbed my things and slipped them in my pocket, cell phone, chapstick, and a pack of gum, and started walking toward the door. Jessica, a few steps behind me, had her hands full. Matt, she said, do you know the real reason I invited you here tonight? Pockets. What? Laughing, she said, yep, I don't have any pockets in this evening gown, and I don't have a purse that matches it either. You get to carry my stuff. You have pockets. Got it. I'm the pockets, I said, joining in her laughter. Stepping through the hotel door and closing it, we heard the electric lock click into place. Jessica handed me her cell phone, a tube of lipstick, and a small wallet that was only large enough to carry a couple of credit cards and maybe a couple of dollar bills. When I saw hers, I realized that I had forgotten my wallet in the suite. I said, wait, Jess, I need to work a Bible verse. Huh? What are you talking about? Work a Bible verse, she said with a puzzled look on her face. Matthew 7, 7, I replied. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you, she finished the verse, obviously familiar with it. What are you talking about? I said, I need to ask you for the key to the suite so that I can seek and find my wallet. She laughed and handed me the key card for the suite, the last thing she had in her hand. I quickly went in and, after looking in the usual obvious places, found my wallet trapped between the two cushions of the navy blue love seat. I grabbed my wallet and was back with Jess in the hallway in a matter of seconds. We made our way through the hall to the elevator and as I stepped back from pressing the down button, Jessica slipped her arm into mine. I could tell she was excited and maybe a little nervous about the evening. She squeezed into me and bounced on the balls of her feet. She was a paradox. If you hadn't seen her and only spoke with her on the phone, hearing the intellect ooze from her lips, you could easily forget she was an incredibly gifted athlete, a tennis star in college. If all you did was see her and that natural beauty, you could easily forget she was one of the most brilliant minds in science. Or at least that's what I thought about her. Obviously others did as well, which is why we were all gathering to listen to her tonight. The sound of Jessica's voice brought me back to the moment as she said, I really wish Dr. Kaplan had felt well enough to make the trip. Please don't get me wrong, I'm so pleased you're my date, but I hate that Dr. Kaplan had to cancel. I feel like I owe all of this to him. He started me on this path, helped with the research and development, and encouraged me all along the way, not to mention the funding he's always provided. Anything I ever needed or wanted, Dr. Kaplan was able to secure it for me, sometimes even before I knew I would need it. Although I had never met Dr. Eli Kaplan, I felt like I knew him. Jessica had talked about him throughout the years. He was a mentor, a helper, a guide, a benefactor, 
He was a facilitator and an introduction maker. He and his company had recruited her right out of college, and Jessica quickly became one of the lead scientists in the firm. But their relationship was more than just work. Dr. Kaplan was the man responsible for helping Jess through the devastating loss of her father, and she felt a sense of devotion to him. From what I could tell, they had a wonderful father-daughter type relationship. She was Dr. Kaplan's friend and go-to girl whenever a new project or lead came along. I'm not exactly sure what was considered a new lead to a histogeologist, but she was always on the move and his firm was never short of funds. Oh, I know Jess. How about we call him when we get finished this evening? He should be awake by then. What's the time difference? Seven, eight hours? Seven. Yes, that's what we'll do. Don't let me forget to call when we get back to the hotel. That's your other job tonight. To be my reminder. That beautiful smile flashed across her face and her brown eyes lit up. You got it. I'm the pockets and I'm the reminder. Let me set the mental alarm and we'll be good to go. The elevator arrived and I held the door for Jessica. She stepped on and I followed her in. I pushed the button for the ground floor and began humming along to the Muzak version of Eye of the Tiger. How do you know every song that comes on the radio? Jessica playfully asked me. Oh that? That's my superpower. That and spouting random bits of useless trivia, I said. Pretty specific superpowers you've got there, Double O Davenport. Hmm. What should I call you? Agent Davenport doesn't begin to express your true abilities. You'll need a better superhero name than that. Let's think. Mega Music Man? Captain Trivia? She asked. Do you normally wear a cape? I put my hands on my hips, standing in my best superhero pose, and blurted, Nope. I've got bright yellow spandex. We were both laughing as the elevator reached the ground floor. It was nice to get her mind off the seriousness of the evening for a few minutes. It was an inexpensive hotel, but we felt like a million dollars as we stepped into the lobby, all smiles. Well, I felt like a million dollars in my double O Davenport costume. Jessica looked like a million dollars especially in the emerald green evening gown she was wearing. She stepped out of the elevator a beat before I did, and a handsome man in a dark, well-tailored suit smiled and made his way toward her. I followed from the elevator a second later and noticed that the man's face flashed a moment of surprise. It passed in an instant. I felt a moment of jealousy that I hope he didn't notice, but that also passed in an instant. Dr. Adams, I'm Omar, your driver this evening. Even his British accent was cool. If you and your guest will come with me, we'll be on our way. Jessica nodded and then turned to me. I can only describe the smile on her face as giddy. This really was the culmination of all those years of devotion to her work and the sacrifices she had made. She was bubbly. I wasn't a gambling man, but if I were, I would say that Omar was one of the most handsome men I had ever seen in my life. Like celebrity good looking. He was athletic and tall, easily a couple of inches taller than six feet. His shoulders were broad, his hair was jet black, and his skin was the color of cinnamon. 
it glistened. His face was square, his cheeks were high, and his jaw was strong. I genuinely had a hard time believing this Omar guy wasn't a model who had been hired to be a driver for the night. The suit he was wearing looked like it was made just for him, like he should never think of wearing anything else, though he probably would look equally as good in a soccer jersey and shorts. He was much more Cristiano Ronaldo without the earrings than David Beckham without the tattoos, though. I really had to fight a negative gut feeling every time I looked at him. Was it just jealousy or something more? We crossed through the lobby, and as we passed the reception desk, the woman who had checked us in earlier in the afternoon said, Have a great evening. Jessica just smiled. Thank you. You too. I said over my shoulder as we stepped into the cool evening air. Omar walked towards his black Cadillac Escalade, the brand's luxury SUV, and opened the rear driver's side door for Jessica. The SUV was new, and that new car smell hit us as the door opened. It's not a Bentley, but this is still pretty cool, she said as she slid across the leather to the passenger side. Omar held the door for me, his left hand resting on the top of the door above the window. The slightly awkward position made his buttoned jacket flare. My weight had already shifted and I was falling into the seat, but that's when I noticed it. He was wearing a gun in a shoulder holster under his suit coat. That's weird for a model, I thought, but before I had time to say anything or even acknowledge what I had seen, Omar had shut the door and was getting in behind the wheel. I grew up around guns. My family was in law enforcement, so guns never bothered me. But tonight, I had an eerie feeling. Just another slight, contrary feeling like sandpaper on the inside about what I had seen. I didn't want to take anything away from Jessica's moment, so I let it pass. Make sure my cell phone is set to silent, please, will you? Jessica's question snapped me back to the moment and it took me an instant to understand why she was saying that to me. I'm fairly sure her reason was twofold. She didn't want her phone to ring while I was holding it, and she was trying to distract me from the fact that she wasn't fastening her seatbelt. She loathed seatbelts. It was one of the very few things that we argued about. Oh, yeah, of course, that'd be awful if your cell phone rang in my pocket during your speech. And buckle up. I found her phone and flipped the switch on the side, turning the ringer to silent. Thank you, she chuckled as she said it, but she still didn't buckle her seatbelt. A couple of minutes later, a cell phone rang in the car. Jessica shot me a look, asking without saying a word, Is that yours? Put it on silent. But it wasn't mine. Apologies, madam, sir, Omar said. This is my wife. May I take the call? I'll only be a moment. Of course, I said before I realized it really wasn't my place to give him permission. I looked to Jessica, who was smiling and thinking of something else. She was all smiles tonight. Excited smiles. Nervous smiles. Tonight was going to be big for her, and she knew it. Omar answered the phone, but when he spoke, it wasn't English. Jessica and I made eye contact, but she just shrugged her shoulders. Because of her travels, she heard different languages all the time, so it wasn't a big deal to her, and in a moment she was lost in her thoughts again. I have noticed that different languages have familiar patterns depending on what part of the world you live in, 
it's pretty easy to recognize Latin-based languages, Spanish or Italian. It's easy to recognize Germanic languages. It wasn't easy to recognize what Omar was speaking. It was something that I'd never heard before. He spoke in low, even tones, but there was a constant hacking to the language, like he was constantly clearing his throat or something. Omar continued his conversation for a few moments longer. I do apologize. My wife is pregnant, and she was asleep when I left. She just wanted to know when I would be back. She's due any day now, Omar said as he continued driving, never looking back at us. That is so sweet, Jessica exclaimed, snapping back to the present. Is it a boy or a girl? A boy, madam. Omar Jr. But please excuse me now. Unlike those Uber drivers, professional drivers are meant to be seen, not heard. He said Uber with so much disdain you could taste it. Okay, he really is a driver. I wonder if he's ever even considered modeling. Jessica was smiling, I'm sure thinking about Omar Jr., the night ahead and what it would mean. Sitting there lost in her thoughts, she looked incredible. She really had it all, brains, beauty, success, and a great sense of humor. I could feel the argument coming. She really is perfect. Why haven't we ever dated, you idiot? Just get the guts and tell her how you feel. It was an argument I had with myself often. It kept me up at night. I didn't want to jeopardize or even sacrifice our friendship by making an unwanted advance. Not knowing how she felt made it all the worse. I was in the friend zone. But was there a way out? Did Jessica feel trapped in the friend zone too? Did she even want out? Just as a way to move myself away from that never-ending self-argument, I started thinking about Omar's gun. I still had an uneasy feeling for some reason. Seeing that gun had given me a moment of pause and I couldn't put my finger on why. For whatever reason, and out of nowhere, that feeling, that negative nudge, was back. With Jessica's help, I was learning to listen to that still, small voice inside. Was this God trying to tell me something, or was I just feeling jealous of Omar? Was this what it was like to hear God speaking directly to you? Was he telling me? Tires screeched across the pavement, and headlights were right beside me, coming at me full speed. Impact. The Escalade rocked on two side wheels, shuddering from the impact. I heard Omar grunt and glass breaking. I heard the deafening roar of airbags being deployed. Our forward momentum spun the back end of the heavy truck around so that we were facing the wrong direction in traffic, but somehow we were still upright. I was stunned, in shock, and unable to breathe, but I instinctively knew that I had buckled my seatbelt, and I was still in my seat. I knew I was alive. It was the tension from the belt that had knocked the wind out of me and was making it difficult for me to breathe. My ears rang with a high-pitched squeal. Jessica's passenger window was splintered into a thousand shards like a glass spider web woven from the impact with the side of her head. She never made a sound. Why didn't she ever buckle her seatbelt? just laid there, slumped, unconscious, and bleeding. 
Omar was draped over the steering wheel. Woozy? Concussed? Alive? Leaning on the horn. Lights blinked all around us. A car alarm was screaming incessantly. It was a tangled mess of utter chaos. I began to regain my senses a little and started to regain my hearing. All around us, tires screeched and horns honked as traffic struggled to avoid impact. In the distance, I heard crushing metal and the sound of headlight glass being broken. We weren't the only ones who had been in an accident tonight. Suddenly, Jessica's door violently swung open and two men in black balaclavas reached in. Like a choreographed dance, each man had his routine. One pointed a gun at me while the other reached under Jessica's arms and dragged her out. I saw the panic in her eyes when she realized what was happening. I struggled to move. I could feel my arms and legs and they were responding to my instructions, but I couldn't determine why I was still in my seat. The seat belt. Fumbling with the latch, I unbuckled it and tried to follow after them, falling out of Jessica's passenger door. I looked up just in time to see her being shoved in the side of a black Humvee. I heard one final scream, Eli, before the doors were closed on her. The engine rumbled, and in an instant, the truck was out of sight. What do I do now? Call the police. Should I call the police? Help! Help! Somebody help! Suddenly, Omar was standing in front of me, blood dripping from his nose. Dr. Adams is in grave danger. Come with me now if you want to save your friend. Before I could protest or ask questions, Omar was running full speed toward the stopped traffic. In a flash, he pulled out his gun and was removing a driver, a scared teenage boy, from his car. Omar and I made eye contact and he shouted, Get in! I stumbled to my feet, my head still not clear. The owner of the car was shouting but moving away as he did. Car horns blared from every side. Headlight glass crunched beneath my feet. Get in now! A bloodied Omar again shouted through the windshield. I was trying, but my body wasn't responding as quickly as I wanted. I'm sorry! I shouted to the car owner, passing him as I moved toward the sleek Camaro. What is going on? Finally, able to get in the passenger side of the car Omar had commandeered, I frantically shouted at him. Is she okay? Omar, what's going on? Who were those guys? Why do they want Jessica? Where are they taking her, Omar? My name is not Omar. It's Aaron. I'm with Mossad. Shut up and let me drive. End of chapter one. If you're still here, Thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed that reading. If you want to purchase Five Minutes to Live, the link is in the description below, and you can find my Facebook and Twitter links there as well. Drop me a line. Please subscribe and hit the bell so you know when the next chapter is released, and if you're enjoying this, please share it with your friends and family. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.